0: Psalm 66 is, in every which way, a psalm of praise. And I think it is amazing how this psalm opens with this amazing declaration, almost we could say, of this one sort of calling everyone to literally shout for joy because of what God has done. This invitation in the first four verses or so I think is actually one of the grandest invitations for the church to worship in all of the Psalms. As here the writer and we don't know who he is he's not named and he's unknown there's no even little details that might give us who this Psalm writer is whoever he was he is appealing to everyone almost we can imagine that falls within his eyesight to come shout come see what God has done. You can hear him yearning for all those who are around him to shout, as he says, to sing, to give God the praise, to say to God, how awesome are your deeds. And indeed, as he goes on to articulate these awesome deeds of this God that he is being called to worship, leaves all of the world trembling. Shuddering, as he says here, all of those, all of your enemies, they come before you and they are cringing at your very presence because that's how awesome you are. And indeed, as he says, all the earth is invited. You are summoned to come and come before this awesome God and tell him basically how awesome he is. Come and see how, what does he say? Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. I love, I love how he opens this psalm, especially because he uses that word awesome. I think many times in our day and age, we are very quick to label things as awesome without really pausing to consider what we have just done with that label. In fact, just this morning, I was listening to Braxton and Lydia I love it that I can use my kids in sermon illustrations. Um, But I was listening to my kids have this conversation. They were playing some such game on their tablet, and Lydia uh, says to Braxton, "This is so awesome." (laughs) And I look over at this game, and you know, some like little running game where they're collecting coins or something. But for her, this was so awesome, and I got to thinking even this morning: Is that truly awesome? (laughs) Because truly, the word as it is, and I'm not trying to be, you know, some sort of like grammar Nazi or something like that. But truly, the word awesome should be reserved for awesome things. Not a kid's electronic game on a tablet, but for like the sight of the Grand Canyon. It leaves you just stunned in silence with how awesome it is. It is a thing that gives us awe. It staggers us. It leaves us wondering how this could be. How this could ever be real. Be true. It's a word that's meant to inspire reverence. Just to inspire almost this speechless wonder. I also think of like perhaps astronauts who go out in space. And they are given the chance to see our world (laughs) suspended in nothingness. And every single time they do, they are truly given an awesome sight. As this earth spins on its axis and suspended there in space, nothing holding it. And yet, as they are circum- as they are going around and perhaps they're on some such mission, they are able to see truly how awesome this world is. And I think the whole point of all of that is just to say, there is only one truly awesome thing in all of creation. And it is this one that we are called here to praise and glory. It is God himself. As he says here, how awesome are your deeds. Everyone that the psalmist is talking to is invited to see the awesomeness of the creator. The one who put everything into place. And indeed, I love what he says in verse 5 again. Notice, come and see what God has done. (laughs) For these people, he goes on to articulate exactly what God has done. He gives them a quick history lesson. He talks to them about crossing the Red Sea as the people of God made that exodus out of Egypt. He also somewhat references the fact when Joshua leads them over the river Jordan. Two amazing events in the life of the people of Israel. He's calling their minds back to come and see what God has done. Look at the evidences of his deliverance in the past. You can see them. You can know them. They are certain. They are factual. Let's praise God for how awesome he works. And that invitation is extended to all who were in that audience. And I would say exactly the same sort of invitation is extended to every single one of us here this morning. Whenever we come into church, that is almost the refrain that should be in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. Come and see what God has done. That's exactly what takes place when we, the church, gather for worship. We are the people of God who have come to gather together to praise the Lord, the awesome Lord of the universe, for all of the awesome things that he has done for you and for me, chief among which is delivering us from sin. Here this morning we can say to our neighbor We can say to our friends We can say to our family members We can say to whoever is near us Come and see what God has done I wonder perhaps if that was maybe perhaps our opening line When we are inviting folks to attend church with us If we would get a different response Not come hear some such preacher But come and see what God has done But I think what is interesting about this particular praise psalm, and it is a psalm of praise, a psalm of worship. All these people are worshiping the awesome Lord. But I think what makes this particular psalm so poignant, so powerful, is the circumstances that sort of serve as the backdrop to that praise. Again, notice verse number 8. The psalmist says, "Bless our God, O peoples! Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul from the from uh, kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us; you have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads." We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Again, we aren't told who wrote this particular psalm. We don't know who it was that put all these words together. We don't know what was going on historically or politically or socially as to what might be the inspiration behind these really gut wrenching lines. They are lines of grief, they are lines of sorrow. They are lines of pain. They are lines of heartache. We don't know what made all of this come about, but what we do know is this: is that all of the people here were obviously going through a very grievous, burdensome season of life. There was a time in which all of those who were here in this audience would know immediately what this psalmist was talking about. There was a burden that had come upon everyone's backs. A hardship that everyone was feeling. A sense of heaviness that was laying, weighing everyone down. And everyone knew exactly perhaps what this psalmist meant. As he says in verse number 11 again notice as he says. Everyone feels as he says uh, as if a crushing burden were on their backs. Everyone felt as though we, they were perhaps carrying around some sort of anvil. An anvil of grief you could say. they were were linked to it they were shackled to it they couldn't escape out from under the weight of this grief that they were carrying and it was crushing them it was weighing them down they felt trapped as he says at the beginning of verse 11 you have brought us into the net a net, a snare, something that traps the prey so that the predator can come and attack and have a meal that's how they feel They feel like prey that has been caught in a snare. And even what's more, as he says in verse number 12, it feels as though they are just being constantly trampled. As he says in verse 12, uh, you let men ride over our heads. It's this image of, of men on chariots, men on horses riding over them. It is the image of their enemies giving them a sound defeat, a crushing defeat. That's what they feel like. They feel like trampled, shackled people who have no sense of victory, no sense of hope, no sense of triumph. This is how, we have, this is how we're feeling. This is what we're going through. And it feels as though there's this constant wave of defeat after defeat. And no matter how much we try, no matter how much we put stuff together, we can't escape the weight that we're chained to and we can't get ourselves out of this netting. It feels impossible. All of this graphic imagery that's describing their grief. And to make matters worse, as if things could get worse. But to make matters worse, it feels as though all of that is coming from the hand of God. Did you notice what he says there? For you, O God... Have tested us. You have tried us. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. You did it. It's a question that I think deserves a lot of silence. Every miserable bend in these people's roads. These people's lives. Seemed to have God's fingerprints all over it. What are you doing God? Why are you making this road go this? Why are you bringing us down this path? God what are you doing? What are you making occur? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you laying this burden on us? Why are you leading us down this road? Maybe perhaps you've asked similar questions. I have no doubt that you have at some point in your life. Similar questions to those, maybe even really recently, maybe very recently, seasons of prolonged suffering or very especially painful suffering can make it seem as if God has somehow turned cruel. That he's gone from a gentle, loving father to some sort of cruel tyrant who's taking us by the hand and leading us to a place only to abandon us. It's as if, then you can almost read it within these lines, that it's as if God has taken these people by the hand and led them straight over a bed of coals. He's taken them uh, to this place to where now they come before a massive yawning river. And they have no way to cross it. And yet God appears on the other side as if motioning follow him. And he's not saying to, to go over it or to go around it. He's actually saying to go through it. And it's precisely in those moments you can, um, I can just imagine the people saying it's way too wide. There's got to be some other way. There's got to be another route. There's got to be another pathway. This route looks horrible. Through fire, through water, through suffering, through grief. Why would you have this way to be the way that you are directing us on? Leading us on? God, there's got to be another route I can take. What are you doing? You can hear almost this exhaustion, this exasperation in the people. If they've reached their limits, they've reached their breaking point. This is where they could go no further. We cannot have any more... God, you've, you've laid on mountain after mountain of suffering. You've put more and more upon us. We can't bear any more loss, any more sorrow. We can't bear any more confusion. Okay, God, that's enough. It's like that old game that you would play with your siblings or cousins. You, you, know, you give yourself a little arm burn. And you say, until one of you cries uncle... And here you can imagine the people, okay, uncle, we get it, God. You, you want us to learn something. Have you ever been there too? And you feel as though, okay, you have a good understanding of the Bible. You have a good understanding of, of your faith. And you say, okay, I know everything is happening for a reason. I know God wants me to learn something. And then it feels as though you can't seem to learn the lesson that makes the suffering go away. <laughs> and you just cry out to God, God, just show me what you want me to learn. <laughs> Show me what you want me to see. I think we've all been there. I know I have. I'm just guessing. I'm guessing you have too. Those times where just. You just want all of that. No more fire. No more water. No more grief. But what I love about this song. Is that if. You know if all we had to go on. Was the first half of verse 12. This would be a very depressing song. It would be a psalm of defeat in many ways. And in fact, we might well see that it appears as if these people were brought to that juncture and they had tired. They had just given, you can imagine them going up to the river. They had gone up to the river's edge. God motions them and they just, they're still there. Because that route of suffering, that route of hardship, that route of heartache, they they don't want to traverse that. So they're still at the river's edge without any hope, without any direction. Or maybe, maybe they were the brave ones, the faithful ones. They went into the water to try and follow God, but then there was just too much. The current was too strong. They couldn't wade through all of, those, all of that water, and so they just resigned themselves halfway through. You can imagine that that's where we would likely imagine them being if all we had to go on was the first half of that verse. But the remarkable truth of this psalm, and I would say of all of our lives, is that's not the end of their story. Because yes, they were brought through fire and through water. But yet notice again, verse number 12. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance thank God for that semicolon thank God there's not a period there after you brought us through fire and water period you left us that semicolon tells us a lot it tells us that yes their their time of suffering and sorrow was not the end that wasn't the end all be all of God's plans for these people His plan for them wasn't to lead them to the place of pain and confusion and sorrow and then just drop them and just abandon them there and say, okay, you figure it out. It feels that way, doesn't it? I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. How many of you have been in a place where it feels as though God has abandoned you and now you're trying to man a sailboat on your own in the middle of an ocean? And that's how it feels in your life. It feels as though the one who has been with you all the way through, all of the the different pathways and, and ways of life, he has been there. And then suddenly there's all these moments of heartache and hardship and confusion and suffering and doubt, and it feels as though he's not there. It's as if God is God has left us. It's not true. It's not what's real, but suffering can always make delusions appear really real. They can make lies appear the only thing that we can see. I think for these people here, they're praising God because they understood, perhaps in a way that remains unknown to us, but they knew that their story wasn't the end of the story. You see, as cliche as it might sound... As tried as it might sound, I truly believe this. That God, the God of the universe, the God of awesome deeds, yes, has a purpose behind all of the pain that he brings us through. He doesn't enjoy seeing his children suffer. God is not delighting when he sees us cry, when he sees us weep, when he sees us in pain. That is not what makes him delight. He is not a cruel, tyrannical God who merely likes to see his people drown or or to see his people suffer under the crushing weight of burdens that he lays on them. Rather, he is a tender, loving father. Whose most earnest desires that his people would be in the place of abundance, as he says here, but specifically, we could add that word, the place of his abundance. And very often, what does that mean? That means walking through the valley. The place of abundance is often on the other side of heartache and pain. You notice what he says there in verse number 12 again. This route that God has taken these people on. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. Through fire, through water that is through affliction, through pain, through adversity, through agony, through doubt, through confusion, in into the place of where God uh, God's abundance resides. that's the route that he's taken these people on, which is just to say that all of that Pain and that, that pressure that was bearing down on them wasn't by accident, it wasn't just by happenstance it was part of the, the design of God that he had for these people I imagine, safe to say that we would all prefer some different route can you imagine the people of God all the way back in the exodus, they come out and they're, they're out of Egyptian bondage in fact, that's basically the rest of that story. Is the fact of the people of God complaining that they could have taken a different route. They wander for 40 years out in the wilderness. You can imagine that they would say, God, you could have led us on a different way. You could have shortened this route by a lot, a couple years. And Of course, there was a purpose behind all of that. A reason behind all of that wandering, behind all of that heartache, behind all of that affliction that they went through. We would all prefer some other path often than what God has laid before us. One with fewer tears, one with much less agony, one with much less suffering, one with much less heartache. No one is signing up for the road of distress and difficulty. (laughs) If given the option, we would always choose the easier route. But the, 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 the truth is, that's not really up to us. God is in the driver's seat, we could say, of all of our lives. He is the one who is directing all our steps, as the psalmist everywhere says. He has our steps ordered. And even when it appears as though we've come to some sort of juncture, some sort of detour, even when it seems like life has gone off the rails and everything seems disordered and discombobulated and directionless, the truth is what? God is leading us through. That was the testimony of these people. God is leading us through. You know, God never promises that our lives will be without difficulty or suffering. Any preacher who says that has just lied to you. The scriptures never say that those who believe in God the Father, who believe that Jesus is their Savior, will have lives of, 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 just, of just immense prosperity or anything like that. Actually, the exact opposite the scriptures reveal to us. What does Jesus say to his disciples in John 16? He says, in the world you will have tribulation. And then he follows that up with a great and heartening encouragement. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will still have tribulation, but I have overcome that tribulation on your behalf. Acts 14, the same sort of testimony as Paul says, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. Paul says again in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All throughout scripture there's this repeated sort of pattern. There's this theme. This theme of God leading his people through, through tribulation, through suffering, through fire, through water. And who is with us through it all? God is, of course. And that might sound too simple. But notice, go with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Because I want you to see the connection between this amazing psalm and this amazing promise in Isaiah 43. You may be familiar with these words. God has led his people through fire and through water. And who is with them? Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's God's promise to you and to me whenever we come about some sort of, some uh, amazing, incredible amount of hardship. Whatever measure of suffering you face in this life, there's a promise that there is one who is with us, who is going through it all alongside of us. That's who he is. You know what this this, uh, passage in Isaiah is almost sort of hinting at? It's hinting at the one who would come. Jesus, of course, whose name is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. The unwavering and the unchanging promise of the gospel is what it assures us that God's presence is with us through fire and through water. That's who we have in Jesus Christ. He is with us. With us, through cancer, through death, through a breakup, through the losing of a job, through a layoff, through a car wreck, through changed plans, through changed lives. Through injury, through illness. Through financial insecurity. There's this promise, fear. Not, I have called you by name, you are mine. That's the promise that we have through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. What were Jesus' parting words to his disciples in Matthew 28? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not, I am with you up until you get to a certain point, And when the heat gets too much, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to drop you. Not, I'm going to be with you up until this particular juncture in your life. And then I'm going to let your wisdom sort of take the reins. I am with you always, he says. I'm with you through whatever place that you come to. Through whatever hardship you face. Through whatever heartache comes your way. I am with you. That's the promise that we have in the gospel of God. And that's who we have. That's who we have with us. We who belong to God are never in a place where God is not. You can go back to those images of Psalm 66 with the people of God. They're brought to the mouth of a river. They're brought to a place where it seems as though they have to traverse over a whole bed of coals in order to get where God wants them to go. There is a place where God has led them. It's not by accident. It's not by happenstance. This is where God is leading his people. Yes, sometimes through fire and through water and through predicaments. Your current plight, whatever it might be, is not a sign that God's love for you has evaporated. I don't know what everyone's burdens are here this morning. Let me reassure you of that. Whatever suffering you are going through, whatever season of confusion you might be enduring, it is not a sign that God is mad at you. In fact, that's how the psalm ends. Did you notice that? Psalm 66, look at verse 19. He says, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or not removed his steadfast love from me. We can praise God. Because even when there is this difficulty that we approach the seemingly unendurable season of life, yes, even that, even in the midst of all that, there is steadfast love that is being dispensed upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to fathom that, I admit. Sometimes there is moments of our lives that occur that make it appear as though God doesn't love us anymore. You don't have to raise your hand to say that you've ever felt that way. I know I have. There's always seasons in our life when it appears as though... God, this doesn't feel very loving. God, this doesn't feel... doesn't feel like you're listening. It doesn't feel like you're actually listening to what I'm saying. Because I'm saying, God, I want to get out of this. But as it says... The psalm says, through testing and through trial, what silver is tried. Which I think is the best way to make sense of those moments and those times when it feels as though God doesn't love us anymore. Feels as though we're being weighed down by a crushing burden. All of those times are not examples of God's anger towards us. Actually, what the scripture everywhere aims to say is that it's the exact opposite. Those are times where God is revealing his love for us. In fact, we have to get into the mindset of that imagery in verse 10. For you, as he says, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. It's that repeated imagery that appears all over the scriptures. Malachi uses it. Zechariah uses it. Most notably, Peter uses it in his first letter. Is that imagery of, you could say, a, a blacksmith or a goldsmith or a silversmith, some sort of metallurgist. And he's using the flames to smelt, to refine a hunk of metal, precious ore. That's the purification process for silver. That's what he's meaning to suggest. And in fact, that's literally what the word tried means. It literally means to smelt or to refine And that process is a process of what? Sweat and and fire and grit. Often involving the smelter to take that piece of metal and put it multiple times into a furnace. A raging, blazing, hot furnace. And every single time what happens is a process of refinement, of purification. Every single time he puts it in and every single time he takes it out. And what, uh, what smokes off of it is what's called slag. It's all of the infirmities that are in that precious ore. They're being burned off. They're being gotten rid of. By what? By going through intense heat. And the point is this. The metallurgist is what? Is he angry at the piece of metal? Is he really mad at that hunk of gold that he's putting into the furnace? Actually, the exact opposite is true. He loves that gold so much that he wants to make it as pure as it can be because he knows that's what it is. He loves that hunk of silver, that hunk of metal, and that's why he's putting it through the flames so that it can become what he knows that it already truly is. This is, I I think, the amazing thought that that has so impacted me. In fact, one, one writer, he says it like this. This is an old 16th century Puritan writer. His name is Tobias Crisp. And he puts it like this. Quote, when you see the refiner cast his gold into the furnace, do you think he is angry with the gold and means to cast it away? No, he sits as a refiner. That is he stands warily over the fire and over the gold, and he looks unto it, that not one grain be lost. And when the dross is severed, he will out with it presently. It shall be no longer there. Even so, Christ sits as a refiner. When once his gold shall have its dross severed, then he takes out his gold, and it becomes as gold seven times purified in the fire. That's how God is looking over you. That's how God in Christ is with you through all of those seasons of heartache and hardship and trial, through fire and water. It's a process by which God is leading us through not because he's mad at you it means actually that he loves you and his purpose is not to make you suffer not to make you feel pain it is though it is it is because though through suffering he makes us into who we already are his children do you know that right here where you sit right now you are a son or daughter of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior from your sins, you are a son or daughter of the King. And the process of life that we go through is what? The process of being conformed to the image of God's Son. The process of conforming is not always painless, and in fact, it rarely is. Because you know what? Actually, That process of conforming, that process of being made into the image of God's Son isn't a a process of just mere improvement. It's a process of regeneration, a process of reformation. It's not just improving little tidbits of our lives, it's making us new. It's a process that often involves pain, all of the slag of sin to be burnt off of us. Sometimes that's painful. We may wish for some other path that doesn't have as much perplexity, that doesn't have as many times when we're crying our eyes out. (laughs) One that doesn't include walking over fire or walking through water. But who knows the way better than us? God does. What was Job's testimony? Job 23.10 says, He, that is God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job saw all of what God was doing as just that same sort of thing. That same process of being tried, of being renewed, of being refined. And it's one that is not easy. It It is a faith that is not easy. That was Job's testimony. Wouldn't you know what that's exactly what the psalmist includes in his testimony? Notice Psalm 56, verse 13. After he says all of that, you've brought us through this, through fire, through water, into abundance. And because of that, notice, I will, verse 13, come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. That was his testimony. That was these people's testimony. I can tell you what God has done. Because I've been through it. And he's been with me through it all. That's the testimony of this whole entire psalm. Of this whole, we could say, entire Bible. That's the testimony of everyone here. God brought us through. God brought us through. Through fire, through water, through loss. Through confusion, through doubt. Through trouble, through injury. Through thick, through thin, through it all. Those times are not enjoyable. But they are not the end. God is still writing your story. I think that's an amazing part here. In fact, we could even say even one step further that our stories are finished in a person. As it says in the book of Hebrews, Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. And we could say he's the one who resolves all of our stories of loss and suffering. Because in him, in Christ, what? Everything that's ruined is repaired. And everything that is broken is mended. And everything that is lost is found. He's the one that makes all of that true. He reconciles and resolves all of that in him. He's the one who's writing your stories. And he's the one who's finished them all. In his life and death and resurrection. This, I think, is what carried Paul through. To give you a New Testament example of this, I just want you to listen. Second Corinthians chapter number 11, Paul recounts what he's been through. Just as these people in Psalm 66 were singing about what they've been through, listen to what Paul's been through. With far greater labors, he says, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, 23, far more imprisonment's With countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews. The forty lashes. Less ones. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night. And hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. You can see this laundry list of things that he's gone through. Here's what I've been through. You want to talk about fire and water? Here's what I've been through. And on top of all of that, on top of everything else, I've had the crushing burden of declaring the truth of God's word to churches, even I have to worry about all this other stuff. And yet notice what is his testimony, verse number 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will boast of the things that will show my weakness. Those places where we have no other option. Yes, I think that's exactly what God does. He leads us to the place where we cry uncle, where he leads us to the place where we have no other recourse and no other hope but to cry out to God for him to deliver. For him to make a way where there seemingly is no way. He boasts in those times as he says that show his weakness. And I think why? Because he knew what the promise was that he had in Jesus. Go with me to chapter number 4 because I want you to see. This is his testimony. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. After all of that, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is anything about what Paul describes light and momentary. Does anything about what Paul talked about in chapter number 11, all of those times of being left for dead, those times being stoned, those times of shipwreck, those times of starvation, those times of being in danger for his very life, everywhere he went, it seemed as though he was being hunted. Does that sound like light and momentary affliction? No. But what was Paul's perspective For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are unseen, are eternal. For Paul, whatever man might do to him was not the end of his story. And he knew that. He rejoiced in that. And he would say, Yes, it is light and momentary. Because what you can do to me is nothing compared to what God has given me in Christ. For him, that was what changed. All of that perspective. If you're just looking at those events that occur in Paul's life. You would say how in the world did he ever get through? What got him through was the one who was with him. Emmanuel. God with Paul. Emmanuel. God with Brad. Emmanuel. God with you. God with us. That's the promise that we have in Christ. Therefore Paul's resolve wasn't even really his own. It was Christ's resolve in him and through him. Why would we all be brought to that place of weakness? Maybe you feel like you're there now. Just like the, the, the people in Psalm 66. You feel like you're at the edge of that gaping, yawning river. And you have no idea why God would be calling you to try to go through it. Maybe God has led you to a place where it feels as if now he's abandoned you. You feel directionless. You feel lost. My friends, there is one who is with you through fire and through water. He will not let such things overwhelm you or overtake you. Perhaps he has put you into this time of, of, of this heat of the moment. We could say this time of being in the furnace because there's some sort of slag that he's burning off. My friends, wherever you are, there is a God who is with you through it all. And he's leading you to a place of abundance. That doesn't always mean that it's always going to work out. But what it does mean is that his place of abundance is always where he is. He's leading you to a place where all you have is him, and that's where he wants you to be. Sometimes that's difficult. But you know, on the other side of that difficulty, what can we say? Come and see what God has done. God, right now, is writing your story, he's finished it in himself. And we say to our friends and our neighbors, come and see what God has done because we've been there. We've been through it. And there's one who has been with us, who has been through it alongside of us. Let us pray.